right. Hey, Greg, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, Danny. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited about this interview. And we talked a little bit beforehand. And uh, I'm really impressed with what you've accomplished over the years. And I can't wait to hear your story. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. It's uh, I'm, I'm, you know, adult ADD, I guess, is the easiest way to label it. So it's a 21 year journey. Um, I grew up in a military family, originally from Virginia Beach. And my dad was stationed in California when I was a early age. And then I spent uh, fifth grade to 11th grade in Pensacola, Florida. And then uh, back to Virginia Beach my senior year, and I graduated high school, and I went right in the Navy right out of high school and uh, skipped the college route. And then uh, after I got out of the Navy, I just, you know, started working in um, restaurants and construction. And um, I was working in a restaurant, and, and there was a guy that was doing an addition on the restaurant, and he hired me to clean up after him. So that was my first experience in construction, and I, I kind of worked those two angles. For a number of years, ended up getting married and uh, moved to the Outer Banks in North Carolina in 1997. And that's when I started my first real company that actually achieved something. And it was just me, a truck and my tools. And I was doing small remodeling projects and handyman kind of stuff. My first year, I did 250000 in sales. Wow. My second year, I did seven fifty. My third year, I did a million two. Then I started building spec houses and uh, got partnered up with a developer who was a friend of my wife's uh, college roommate. Um, they were really good friends and he was a developer out of Northern Virginia and he taught me the business of building spec houses and developing. And I started doing that. So I did 12 million, you know, the following year. And then, uh, I don't know about over a seven year period, I peaked at $30 million and I sold that company, uh, in wow. 2004, 2005, which was kind of the peak of the real estate market. If you remember back then, uh, most area was 04, 05. And then it started tailing off after that before the big crash of 2009. So, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. You know, we were a, we were a big company. Uh, our phone would ring all day, every day. All of a sudden the phone stopped ringing. For sale signs started popping up everywhere when stuff was selling in days. So I kind of figured an interest rates were climbing. And uh, you know, it's really funny where interest rates are now. When I was building spec houses, I was paying nine and three quarters percent uh, construction loan interest, traditional bank financing, um, which back then was really good, mm -hmm. you know, on a million dollar spec house. Uh, so anyways, um, you know, I kind of got lucky, saw the writing on the wall, sold my company and just kind of took a step back and, um, and then started investing and developing and doing more of that and outsourcing things and, you know, kind of been on that path ever since, uh, you know, 2009, 10 timeframe and 2011, we moved to Charlottesville, Virginia. And, uh, you know, I've been building and developing, you know, here for the last seven years. And pretty much after I sold my company, I started outsourcing, hiring other general contractors to work for me and, and doing things like that instead of building myself. So, um, you know, I've kind of transitioned out of the full-time general contractor role. I am licensed in, in two states and I've got a real estate broker's license in two states uh, as well, which, you know, I got my license in 2000, uh, my real estate license after I paid uh, one of my real estate agents that were doing my deals about 300 grand one year. I said, <laughs> I'm going to get my license. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and capture some of that. And, uh, and it was really funny. My first real estate commission out of the gate, I bought an oceanfront hotel that had six lots on the oceanfront. And um, at the time they were probably worth about 800,000 each. And then there were two lots across the street. So it was a $4 million purchase, um, but I could have sold the thing, flipped it right there for 6 million if I wanted to. So we tore the hotel down, built a bunch of houses and uh, you know, over a two year period. But uh, when I put my sign up in front of the property after we closed, the guy next door came over and said, hey, I noticed you bought this property. I've got a lot here for sale. Would you like to buy my lot? And I said, well, sure. I said, I just paid $600,000 a lot over here. I'll give you 600 grand. He said, no, I want 800,000. And the market 
wasn't quite there yet. This was 2003, 2004 timeframe when things were really starting to get nuts. And uh, I said, you know, I can't pay you that. I paid six over here, but I'll be happy to list it for you at 800 and see what happens. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't think we were going to sell it for 800. So I listed the lot for him, sold it for 800,000 in 30 days. I made a $30,000 commission. <laughs> My first commission right out of the gate as a real estate broker. That's awesome. Well, you'd think the light bulb would have went off then, right? But <laughs> I kept going down the building path instead of the real estate path. Yeah, when the high dollar like that, I mean, that's, yeah, the commissions are pretty, pretty big, pretty hefty. Well, at the time in our market, you know, it was a resort rental market, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and it's a little barrier island off the coast of North Carolina, kind of like the Corpus Christi area, you know, off your, your Gulf Coast, off of Texas. Um, the average transaction at the time, back in 2000 to 2004, was 750000 so realtors, it was just like taking candy from babies. I mean, their average commission was in the $20,000 range. So yeah. it was really easy. And my average construction uh, build was about, not including the land, the houses that I were building were, were $750 to $1.2 million um, that I was building for other investors because uh, they were rental properties. They, they rent in the summer during the week. They're like commercial properties. They're pretty much turnkey automatic. And uh, they're really good rental investments now for people that like that kind of thing. They cash flow really well. Uh, at the interest rates today, but you know, that's what I'd do. I'd build some oceanfront houses and sell them and you'd make two, 300,000 a house and you know, I'd, I'd build custom homes for other investors. So I had a handful of people uh, that I was doing deals for and building with and I'd buy the land, flip it to an investor, build them a house. It was, it was a good time. And then, you know, 2009, it stopped. You know, there was absolutely no work to be done. Uh, everybody was out of business. It was in the building business. And fortunately for me, I had property, I had some cash and you know, I just kind of closed down the company and laid off my last employee. And, and then I just, you know, from that point on, I started hiring other general contractors to work for me. And I was just doing specs and flipping houses and, you know, things like that. So, uh, so I've done anything from building residential spec houses where I started in the business to uh, flipping houses. I've done commercial. Um, I've built commercial ground up. I've renovated commercial buildings and sold them. I've done um, a couple of subdivisions, 151 lot mixed use subdivision and 101 lot uh, subdivision. And, uh, and I've done some entitlement flips where I take the land, uh, get them fully entitled, ready for permits. And then I'll just flip that whole project to a, another developer or builder, uh, like a Ryan Homes or a Pulte or Sentex Homes, a national home builder. Um, they have a real appetite for lots right now. So, uh, so those are kind of the things that I've done along the way. Sorry about that. Let me, I've never had that happen. What happened? Okay. You can't hear it. That's good. That's uh, there, there's a, call coming in here on let me, let me stop this real quick all right there we go apologize for that yeah with everything connected now you get ringing from the computer and from the phone and from every which direction so yeah yeah <laughs> man so with i mean it's just incredible i don't know that i've had anybody on that that's really done that many different things i mean they're all related in certain ways it's all real estate but what has been your favorite out of all of that? What, what have you enjoyed the most? Yeah, so it was a progression. I started out as a remodeling contractor and I was working for some guys that were flipping houses down on the, down on the beach, resort houses. And they were putting 100, 200,000 in, you know, 500 to $700,000 houses and selling them for a million, two million, three. So that was a lot of fun. And it, it just kind of evolved. And it got really difficult to do those projects because everybody was so busy building new construction houses, you couldn't get the trades. So, um, you know, I talked offline about the different companies I started. One of them was a plumbing company. I had trouble getting a plumber. So the guy that was doing my work, um, I just, I said, you know, he was struggling. 
And I said, well, hey, why don't we get together? I'll buy your company, pay off all your debts, and we'll grow your company. And, you know, that way I'd have a plumber at my beck and call whenever I needed one. So we did that within, you know, a couple of months. He was the largest plumbing outfit uh, down on the beach. We took him from one truck to eight. And he was doing over about over, you know, a million, million and a half a year in plumbing, which was really, really good. Uh, did the same thing with electrical company, painting company, hurricane shutter company. So a lot of things kind of happened along the way by necessity. Yeah. And then, you know, once I started learning how to do things, so I had it all in-house. I had 20 employees full-time on staff. I had trucks on the road. We had every tool known to man on these things. So we could do anything ourselves. And I owned all the trades uh, myself. So I had it all pretty much in-house. And then the last piece of the puzzle was pool, spas, and landscaping, because every house we built had a pool, uh, had a hot tub, and we did a landscaping package. So the guy that was selling me hot tubs came to me and said, hey, you know, why don't we start a business together? You can buy these things wholesale, and then we can sell to other people. So we did that. And uh, so, you know, things just kind of came together over that. And really, all of this kind of happened over about a seven and a half, eight-year period, where all of that kind of happened. And... Um, you know, I'm a leader, delegator, motivator, so I'm very good at finding talent, finding untapped potential in people and helping bring it out and coach them uh, to success. So that's kind of been my model where it really isn't me doing everything. It's me kind of behind the scenes, propping other people up, backing them up, helping them build their confidence and kind of coaching them to their success. So it's funny, somebody else asked me that the other day, what's your favorite thing about what you do? And for me, it's finding people with untapped potential and helping them grow and reach their God-given talents and really do what they were created to do and fill their purpose in life. That, to me, is more fun than making any amount of money on any deal you can find. Now, that being said, as I evolved into new construction, it's much easier. You know, building a spec house is a lot easier than, you know, doing renovations a lot of times because you know exactly what, you're, what you've got. You know exactly what it takes. You know exactly what your costs are. That nothing's in, you know, nothing's hidden. Everything's predictable. The only downside to new construction is it takes a lot longer. You can flip a house in 30 to, you know, 90 days mostly. New construction is going to take you six to nine months. You know, from the time you start, close on the land, get your permits, you know, get it built, get it under contract, get it closed. You're six to nine months. Uh, so it's a much longer process. So I've kind of phased away from some of that in the last couple of years, especially with the way the market is shifting right now and, and things are changing. It's just taking too long. I want to get in and out. but. Um, I really enjoy that. Probably the most fun is taking old buildings and renovating those and turning them into mixed use uh, mm -hmm. type, uh, type things, whether it's, you know, apartments and, and retail um, or turning into a flex space where you have multi-tenants in, in an industrial commercial building, you know, things like that. It's kind of fun to repurpose buildings like that and bring in a number of, of different uses to it. And, um, you know, so, you know, if I had a choice, I'd probably do a lot more of that if that was available because it's bigger deals. You don't need as many of them. It's, it's, it's big ticket. And it's a really a lot of fun to, to take an old building that has a lot of history and kind of expose the original elements of it and, and bring it out. And whether it's a restaurant or apartments or, or whatever it is. And, you know, I've done a lot of commercial construction where we've built restaurants, we've built retail stores, we've built offices. And, you know, you go into these old historic buildings and expose the brick and, maybe expose some of the old fireplaces and things like that. It's, it's really cool. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, Melissa and I have talked in the past about doing something like that, and, and there's just some unknowns there. And, and I guess, you know, with your experience going in and knowing, you know, potentially we could have this issue with, uh, you know, asbestos or something else, you know, come up. Yeah, I've just never even looked into doing any of that stuff. I mean, what are the things that allowed you to be able to do that without having too much risk? 
you know, going into doing something like that when you haven't done it before? Well, on the commercial side, so working for others. So I learned by, you know, being a contractor and doing projects for other people um, and working with other developers that have done it before and they, they know the deal. So, you know, what I tell a lot of people is um, the, the best way to learn is to, you know, either work with somebody who's done it um, and do a joint venture or find somebody to kind of mentor you through something. But if you can find somebody in your area and partner with them, that's the best way to do it and learn, you know, through them. And um, pretty much in any area, you're going to find developers that are doing kind of what I'm talking about. When you have an urban area and you've got that gentrification going on around the urban center, um, you know, all you got to do is find the deal and you know how to find a good deal, right? So it's the same thing as in the residential side. You find a motivated seller or you find a building that's abandoned or dilapidated that's in an area that is kind of, you know, up and coming and gentrifying around an urban center. You get that thing under contract. The difference is you don't have to close in a week or 30 days or whatever. On commercial, typically you can get six months to a year and you put it under contract with the option to buy it and, and your consideration for that option, your earnest money, if you will, is the due diligence you're gonna do. So you say, look, Mr. Seller, uh, I'll give you a million dollars for this building, but I'm gonna need six months to do my due diligence and I'm gonna need six months to close after that. You know, it's a much longer process depending on, on what you're doing. Um, so the first thing you do is you get it under control, make sure it's a good deal. And you know, values are values. They're pretty easy to determine on a commercial property, just like they are in residential. You just got to talk to some brokers and, you know, people in the game and, you know, you can really uh, vet the values pretty easily. So once you get that property under contract, then you start going through your due diligence process and what you offer the seller in consideration for option money is all the work you're going to do. Your environmental assessment, your asbestos assessment, your lead assessments. Um, you know, your, your uh, you know, any kind of surveys on the property, uh, any kind of plans that you do, any, any of that. And you want to limit your, your upfront cash spend. So you want to kind of know what you're getting into a little bit, but you want to control the property. So once you get it under contract, then you go find a developer and a general contractor uh, to go through that building with you and start walking through it. And they'll start pointing out, you know, hey, this is going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. We've got to watch out for this, watch out for that. Uh, depending on the building and what's going on, you can get structural engineers and architects to walk the project with you with your developer and, and really start going through it and start looking at things. But asbestos isn't really a problem. You just get the assessment done and then you do the abatement. Uh, so it's just a cost. And I mean, I've done those on residential, you know, um, lead, same kind of thing. And a lot of areas, you know, with properties before a certain date, you have to have that lead uh, assessment. You got to do the lead abatement, which mm -hmm. none of that's really a big deal. You know, it's, uh, it's just a matter of going through the process and factoring into the cost of the of the deal and it's just like anything else if you find out there's a huge asbestos problem or any other type of problem you go back to the seller and say hey it's going to take two three hundred grand to abate this he would have to do it anyways um so you just negotiate that out in the deal hmm. and uh and then move from there so it's really hmm. the same process it's just a different set of parameters and a different set of tests and inspections that you want to go through and uh and it's, and it's a longer time frame yeah, it sounds like, and, and that's very helpful. Have you, have you finding properties that are already kind of, you know, listed with, with, uh, you know, agents or brokers or whatever, and, you know, or are you doing the same sort of hunting down that, that we as residential house flippers do and, and send postcards and letters and things like that to owners of those buildings as well? Trying to yeah, find the so, off market. Um, yeah, there are some listed properties that uh, you target the ones that have been on the market for a while that are overpriced and, uh, you know, you can make some offers on those. You know, sometimes you can get them that way. A lot of the commercial brokers are hesitant to submit low ball offers on properties. 
Uh, so if you get one that is resistant and you're not licensed, then you can go straight to the seller and you can tell that you can tell that broker, Hey, look, you know, please present my offer. You just never know. You might catch somebody in the right mind frame uh, or the, or the right time in their life when they're ready to sell. I know it's been priced at $2 million. We all know it's not worth 2 million. I can pay a million, you know, and if they're, if they don't want to present the offer, then you can present it directly to the seller. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and even as a licensed broker, if I get somebody who's kind of stubborn on the other side, I'll tell them, look, I'm happy to take the offer to your seller or you can take it, you know, wh whichever way you want to go. So listed properties are one way. Another way is drive, especially on commercial, driving for dollars is huge. So you're just driving around. And if you see a commercial building that looks, you know, abandoned, vacant, dilapidated, rundown, you know, a lot of commercial property owners just don't put the money into the maintenance and the upkeep and uh, deferred maintenance. Uh, they're just pocketing the cash. So the properties fall into a state of disrepair and it's easier for them just to sell it and cash out than it is to, you know, fix it. So you can use the driving for dollars approach. And then obviously direct mail is another one with commercial property, you know, typically a nice professional letter uh, is the way to go. They're not going to respond to postcards or things like that. They're going to respond to phone calls. They're all really happy to talk to you about their property, about what they do. They're all sophisticated investors like you are and like I am. So it's a different conversation. And they're going to know real quick whether you know what you're talking about or not. So, you know, you really want to make sure you, you're educated and you know what you're talking about before you go after a commercial, you know, property owner. And uh, one of the ways for a lot of people that are just getting started is to, you know, let them know you're, uh, you're, you're starting out, you're new, you want to learn, would you be willing to do a deal with me? Would you be willing to own a finance or, you know, help me do this deal? A lot of commercial property owners will do that. Um, they'll take you under their wing and they'll help you, you know, by financing, they'll help you by, you know, if they know there's a highest and best use and they just don't have the money, then maybe you can bring the money, you know, component to it and do something together. Uh, they'll work it, work it through with you. So it's just a different level of conversation. And most of them are, are happy to answer the phone. You can get directly to them. And a lot of them are big companies and they might have layers. But, you know, when you say, hey, I'm interested in buying the property, I'd like to speak with, you know, the owner, they'll usually put you right through. Uh, and I've never had a problem getting directly to the owner on a commercial property, much easier than residential. So what are some interesting stories from doing that? Have you run across any, any sort of interesting circumstances or situations with, with some of these properties? Yeah, you, you know, it's really interesting. So I've had, uh, one of the things that I used to do a lot of is oceanfront hotels, you know, um, because the land was more valuable as a residential house. So a lot of properties I've purchased over the years have been, you know, residential hotels. And I've had two of them that were really interesting. They were both destroyed by hurricanes. And uh, one of the sellers tried to go through a redevelopment process and convert the destroyed hotel into condos. And I told him at the time, you know, the regulations wouldn't allow it. You know, you don't want to go down that road. And, um, you know, instead of, you know, uh, taking my advice, he went ahead and tried to do it. They tried to do it without getting permits. They ended up in a big lawsuit and it was just a huge mess. About three years down the road, the guy walks in my office out of the blue and I'd moved locations. So I was in a whole different office. Hadn't talked to a guy in three years. He just comes in off the street and says, hey, I'm ready to do your deal now. So we got together, did the deal, and uh, we were going to tear down the hotel, build four oceanfront houses, and we had a piece of land across the street that we would own free and clear. And we were going to, um, uh, you know, build a couple of houses on that or some townhouses or something like that. So this was 2007, eight timeframe. And just as the market was shifting then, and I didn't really know how bad it was shifting. We just knew something was going on. Uh, I just, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. He said, why don't you just sell the oceanfront parcels and then you're free and clear on the, you know, semi-oceanfront side and just develop that. So we ended up doing that. 
and uh, you know, I tore the building down, sold the ocean oceanfront lots, and we had the piece across the street left to develop. And uh, you know, it was it was really good. We ended up making about a million dollars just on the oceanfront nice. side, just by selling it. And we were projecting to make that building it. You know, wow. so that was that was a pretty interesting, yeah. you know, scenario how that how that works out like that sometimes, where you you think you're going to do one thing and you shift gears and do another, and it was totally happenstance. I was talking to a friend, you know, about the project, and he said, "Why why don't you just do this?" And, uh, you know, you just, sometimes you just get in that go mode and you think, man, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go and I'm going to build these things and, and just deal with it. And, you know, all of a sudden you take a step back and you're like, wait a minute, you know, it's kind of like retailing, right? You know, you don't always have to renovate a house to get the profit out of it, especially right now in certain areas. So, you know, that was kind of interesting. Um, another one, uh, we had a piece of land, um, in front of, uh, where we kept our horses. Uh, so my daughter rides horses and, and we kept our horses on this property behind, there was a couple of houses on this, you know, no, I think it was about four or five acres, something like that. And I'd gotten involved in a gymnastics uh, trampoline cheerleading program. Another one of those deals where a guy uh, called me up, said, Hey, I'm struggling in my business. I have these kids, you know, I've got this program. I got 75 kids in it, you know, come check it out. And he was a junior Olympic level coach. He was operating out of a little building and had 75 kids in the program. And uh, it was really awesome. And I was big into, you know, um, the rec, rec center and youth sports. And I coached every sport. You know, I've got all girls, um, you know, that they played over the years. So I had a passion for kids and a passion for helping, helping them. We didn't have a gymnastics program in our area. You know, it was a very small community. So I said, okay. So I went ahead and bought his program, built him up, took him from 75 kids to 360. I put him in a 10,000 square foot warehouse that we built it out into a really nice gymnasium. So I said, I'll tell you what, um, I'm going to buy this piece of property out in front of our barn and we'll build a building, you know, to put you in. So I buy this property, tear the houses down, and um, build a 16,000 square foot metal building we were going to put the gym in. Well, during that time, I had taken the program nonprofit, given it back to him, but now it was a nonprofit, and he was the executive director of it, and the nonprofit board decided, you know, we really don't want to take on that much overhead. We're kind of, we like it where we're at. We want to keep it small, and I said, okay, that's great. So I put it up for sale, and a Harley Davidson dealer uh, wow. came into the area and bought the building from me and we turned it into a Harley Davidson dealership. So, you know, that's another one of those things where you start out with one thing and it ends up, you know, being another. So right. you know, that's, what's really cool about real estate is that you just never know where things are going to go sometimes in the commercial world, especially. Um, and i tell you what's really fun too. So one of the things I like to do when I buy a building that has been occupied like a hotel or like houses or whatever, I'm going to tear down. Um, what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll open it up to people that want to salvage things. So like the hotels, both, both mm -hmm. hotel properties I bought, I just kind of put the word out and said, okay, for this weekend, before I tear the hotel down, come get whatever you want. And it's really amazing to see what people actually come salvage from these things, right? And they do a lot of the demo for you. So I put a dumpster out wow. there and invite them and say, come on in, take what you <laughs> want, you know, and people come in. I mean, they take the light bulbs, they take, you know, pictures off the wall, the little TVs in the room. I mean, it was really interesting and a lot of fun to kind of watch that little frenzy going on, you know, is, I mean, you got a hundred people crawling all over this property, you know, pulling stuff out. It, it, it's pretty neat. You know, some people, I don't know, one guy found a hundred dollars in stamps, you know, he, he cracked into a safe and that's what was in there. Uh, so anyways, you know, when you're on the commercial side, it's, it's interesting the different things that you can get into and the different directions that a, a project and a property can take. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to delve in right now to, you know, this is, this is quite a bit of time that, you know, span that you've done all of these things. And when it's told like that, it seems like you've done it really quick. Like you just did this all of a sudden over a couple of years, but there's a lot involved in there. 
what I want to get into a lot more and I'm really fascinated by is, you know, you're taking that plumbing, plumbing contractor and, you know, buying that business, building that business up. What was the process for that? What did you, how do you do that? I mean, it sounds like you did it several times with several different trades. Yeah. Yeah. Some were existing, some we started from scratch. So, um, you know, you asked me before we started, uh, you know, what I enjoyed the most and, and building people. I love building people. So here was a guy, he was a plumber. He was from West Virginia. Great guy. He was doing our work, but you know, he just couldn't make the business work. You know, he was one of those guys that was, you know, very good at what he did, but he wasn't a great business guy. And, you know, I'm not college educated, but I am very self-educated and I read all kinds of books, you know, uh, listen to books on tape, you know, my iPod was never full, it never had any music on it, and it still doesn't today. It's all books. And whenever I, you know, work out, do exercise, whatever, drive around, I'm always listening to books on tape. So I kind of learned that way. And then I learned through other people that I was working with and working around. And so what I would do is, you know, he came to me and he said, hey, I got this problem. I'm not ready to go out of business. I'm going to leave town. And I'm like, Bob, you're a great plumber. I'll tell you what. Um, I built this company up. Let's go ahead and uh, let's do a deal. I'm going to buy your company. I'm going to pay off all your debts and I'm going to go buy six trucks. We're going to hire some people and we're going to get you out there. And just the workload that I had alone was enough to get him started and get him going. And, um, and I, you know, I'm a, and, and it was a small community. So I'm grassroots guerrilla marketing. And this is back in the day before the internet was huge. Uh, this was back in, you know, 99, 2000. So we did the official deal where I bought his corporation I paid off all his debts, which at the time, I, know, I think he was 20, 30 grand in debt, something like that. Went to the dealership, I bought eight brand new vans. We got them logoed up. And, um, you know, down there, again, it was a small community, only 60,000 people. So when you put eight trucks on the road with your logo and your sign on it, and it was Lane Service Company, and his logo was him as a Superman, you know, on the side of the truck, it was really cool, really visible. We put him on the road. We put the word out to all the realtors in town, all the property management company in, in town, all the builders. And, um, and he was able to recruit people to fill those trucks. Um, you know, so I just, I, I uh, financed the trucks, you know, zero interest at the time. I had a dealer uh, who was a good friend and they were doing the zero interest stuff. So we financed all the trucks and instantly, I mean, literally in 30 days, he went from one, one truck to eight. Um, I hired him an office manager, which he never had, got him set up with QuickBooks. And I put him in a position and coached him on how to lead, delegate, manage, and put systems in place in his business. And, you know, back then, um, there, you, you didn't hear a lot of talk in small businesses about systems and about organization and about leadership. Uh, so that was a new concept to a lot of tradespeople. So one of my goals as a builder was to be more efficient, to make more money, and to really capitalize on what was going on. I, I took it on myself to help my trade partners become more efficient at what they did. So I started coaching them in their businesses and teaching them how to run a business and how to be a business owner uh, as opposed to, you know, just working in their business. So, he, you know, that's literally how we did it. Um, you know, I just, you know, did a stock corporation purchase, paid off his debts, went to the dealership, um, you know, literally signed for, I think he already had two trucks and we signed for six brand new ones. Um, we went out and bought all the tools, the shelving, lettered them up, literally, all this in 30 days while he was recruiting uh, people from another plumbing company that was shutting down in the area. You know, again, another guy that, um, you know, didn't understand how to control his business, hired an office manager, put the books in place. She was working in, alongside my office manager and was trained by my office manager, got all those systems set up and then started 
uh, you know, just started rocking and rolling. And he literally went from, you know, 150,000 a year to 800, like in a year uh, wow. in terms of revenues. And uh, I think it was three years later, uh, I sold the company back to him and uh, he's still, still down there to this day, you know, rocking and rolling. Nice. So did you have any concerns though, as far as, you know, he wasn't able to manage that business and you were going to coach him, right? But did you have any concerns that he wouldn't be the right person to be able to run and lead that business and be able to do those things and that it would so, suck up a lot of your time trying to keep that afloat and trying to coach somebody that, that maybe wasn't the right fit for, for being that person to be able to handle that kind of thing? No, not at all. I mean, I kind of knew he had the ability. He just didn't know how to do it. And that's where you have to discern when you're working with people. Like a lot, probably some of the biggest mistakes I made earlier in my career were trying to take people that I thought or even they might have thought could go to the next level, but they really couldn't. And wanting to take anybody and help anybody get to the next level. Um, I had an office manager, a bookkeeper that worked for me you know, the entire time down there. And she was very good, very loyal. I offered to pay for her college to go to school and finish her accounting degree. She only needed a few classes. And um, you know, she wouldn't do it. Instead of doing an hour a day at lunch, she chose to go home and watch soap operas. Um, I had another superintendent that worked for me. Or actually, he was a carpenter, lead carpenter working for me. And I uh, had him in a box truck, 24-foot box truck with every tool known to man. It was him and a helper. And, you know, I would send him out and he would do the whole job turnkey. And, and we would just, you know, job to job to job. And I said, you know what, you know, Larry, I, I really think you can make a great project manager. And I think you can make a great superintendent. And, you know, he thought, oh, wow, that sounds good. You know, I'm going to go and drive a truck like Greg and I'm going to you know, run all these jobs. And I don't have to swing a hammer. Well, he failed miserably, you know, and, and he ended up going back and saying, man, I, I really enjoy working with my hands. And all I got to do is what I got to do. I don't have to worry about all these other guys. And I remember it was one of the funniest, funniest things ever. So we were training him on how to be a superintendent. And back then you're, you're running you know, uh, $800,000, $500,000 construction projects, you got a lot going on. So he shows up to one of the jobs one day and he calls up, you know, the vice president of our company and says, man, I got the plumbing, I got the plumber here, I got the concrete truck here, I got the painters here, I've got, uh, you know, the electricians, you know, what, what should I do? And he's like, jump for joy. <laughs> they all showed up, you know, celebrate. So uh, anyways, long story short, a lot of times we want to help other people get to the next level but a lot of times other people don't really want to be at the next level and they really uh, aren't meant to be at the next level. So you really have to discern that early on. And the way I discern that is I let people come to me and anybody that I helped that ended up successful, they all came to me and they said, Hey, I want to do this thing. So then I would take them under my wing and go. Anytime I came to somebody else and said, Hey, I think you should do X. It didn't work out so well. So that's really one of the ways is if somebody really wants it bad enough, they're going to come to you and they're going to say, Hey, I, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. I feel like I've got more in me. I just don't know how to do it. And I need help. And that's, that's how all of those things happen with, you know, uh, eight of the 10, I guess it's about 12 different companies now, but about eight of them were all that way where it was somebody who was already in the business, either as an employee for a company or they had their own company. And they said, Hey, I want to do this. And, uh, and I just took them under my wing and I coached them and they did it. All I did was get on the phone and coach them. So, I mean, I didn't even have to really get into the day-to-day -day of the business. I would just talk to them every morning, every evening, and just kind of coach them. And I would look over their financials, look over their books, help them with an action plan, goal setting, keep them accountable, you know, things like that. So that's kind of how. 
Nice. So, so they come to you because they maybe knew that you've done that before, or they've just seen what you've done with your own businesses. Yeah, a lot of it. So again, it was a small town, so I was pretty high profile. So, you know, people knew what I was doing. They watched how quickly I grew my company, you know, my building company. I mean, again, it's like you said, a lot of, I mean, this has been a 21 year journey, right? For me. And a lot of people, when you hear what I've done, it sounds like it's just, wow, you know, how could you do all that? Well, it was 21 years. And down there on the Outer Banks from 97 to 2005, when I did the bulk of the growing of my building company, you know, people noticed that. I mean, we instantly, it seemed like to them overnight, we had trucks and signs everywhere, you know, for our construction company. And again, it was guerrilla marketing. The trucks and signs were everywhere for a reason. And, you know, I bought full page ads in the yellow pages back then. That was the medium. We were on TV. Um, I was involved in every community uh, organization you can imagine sponsoring every event, you know, so it, it was grassroots guerrilla marketing, you know, back then to grow a service company, you know, like we were. And, uh, and then it became land positions, you know, that's how we grew as a building company and new construction was securing the land kind of like in the flipping business, you got to secure the houses um, and control the real estate. So uh, yeah, so it was people just watching what I did, watching what I did in the nonprofit sector. So I was on a lot of boards Mm-hmm. Um, I was involved in a lot of community organizations. I was very active in my church and I would do a lot of big events and, and things like that. So people knew that I was a guy that I made things happen. You know, if you ask people about me, you know, what's, if you describe Greg Dickerson, what's the one thing you say? And people say he gets things done. He makes things happen and gets things done. And, um, you know, so that's just kind of what I am. So what I tell a lot of people is be careful what you tell me <laughs> because we're going to do it. So if you say, Hey, I really would like to do this one day. I'm like, well, let's go. Yeah. Why wait? You know, so that that's kind of how I'm wired. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, people get excited about something, but if they're not willing to follow through and take the action it takes to to get to that point, then yeah, that's interesting. So what are some of the favorite things in taking some of those businesses that you you helped them build uh and then buy back from you? What were some of those action planning kind of things and what kind of coaching do you you find is most effective in helping people to to do that? Well, you know, first of all, you know, leadership and management are two different things. Um, So a leader sets the example, leader sets the pace of the pack, the leader holds people accountable, the leader creates and sets the vision, creates the goals, and then helps hold people accountable to the goals. Managers manage. And um, there's a system that I learned a long time ago called the one minute manager. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or read that. that has been my management philosophy my entire career. And it's how I built so many companies so quickly is by adhering to that uh, philosophy. And the one minute manager, there's several books in the series. It's really all about um, number one, finding uh, champions and coaching them to success, finding winners and coaching them to success and not wasting time on losers or, you know, can't do. So you either have a won't do or you have a can't do. A won't do, there's really nothing you can do with. A can't do, you look at and you say, why can't they do? And as a leader, it's our job to give them the tools, trainings, systems, and support to be successful. But more importantly than that, you got to give them clear direction, exactly what you want and when, and then you got to measure that performance and hold them accountable. And then at the end of the day, when you do that, if you've given them as a leader, you know, you always look at yourself. If something's not working in your business, you got to look at yourself first. Okay, what did I not do? Did I not give them the tools, training systems, and support to be successful? Did I give them clear direction? Did they know exactly what I expect? Most business owners will hire somebody, put them in a job and say, go. And they don't tell them, well, here's exactly what I expect. 
here's exactly how your job works and this is what I expect of you on a day to day. And more importantly, they don't measure and manage, you know, measure that performance. So when you have somebody that is, you know, not doing or living up to the expectations that you've set, you got to ask yourself, why is that? Then you got to start evaluating. And if you've given them everything they need to be successful, which is our job as leaders, we are servants. You know, I flipped that pyramid upside down. The CEO is at the bottom of the period. Everybody else in the organization is at the top. It's our job to give them everything they need to be successful and tee them up for success. Um, you know, so at the end of the day, if something's not working, you got to go back, you know, what did I do or what did I not do? And then that's where you get into the can't do or the won't do. So you'll get two kinds of people. It's either somebody that just, no matter what you do, they just won't do it. So you got to get rid of that person. You got to get rid of them quick. If you've got a can't do, then you find out what it is. Your goal set, you redirect, you measure, goal set, redirect, measure, you know, those types of things. And then you gotta, you, you've got to put the right person in the right job. So if you follow that system, it's pretty foolproof. And the problem that a lot of people get into is they don't want to get rid of the wrong people quick enough, and they don't want to help the right people quick enough. So those are really the two things. So the One Minute Manager, there's four books in the series. The first one, it's really about helping people feel good about themselves so they'll produce good results. It's catching people doing things right, rewarding performance in public, redirecting and reprimanding bad performance in private. But more than anything else, it's goal setting, accountability, and redirecting. And then the four books in the series takes you through um, all of the levels of leadership and management and things like that. You know, the different types of employees, you know, the different levels of employees, you basically have four levels. You have the beginning employee, they don't know and they know they don't know. You have the level two employee who's the most dangerous is they don't know, but they think they do. You have level three, which is more common than not. And it's kind of everybody who ever came to me, they know, but they don't know how to use it. And then you have the fourth level, they know and they know they know. So that's what that system is all about. It's all about taking people through that process. It's about setting goals, measuring performance, and holding them accountable. And a lot of people say, well, what do you mean hold accountable? What, what do you do? Well, you say, okay, if I want you to close, you know, 25 sellers this week out of 100, you know, leads, then you, at the end of the week, you got to sit down and you got you to look at what the goal was. You got to look at how many they did. And then you got to find out if they exceeded the goal, you reward that performance, and then you set a new goal. If they didn't, then you got to find out why and if they, and, and, you know, why they didn't achieve that. And then you have to redirect that behavior and you have to model that behavior uh, in terms of what it's going to take to get to that goal and help them reach their goals. So, uh, and then ultimately, if you, if you have somebody that just can't achieve what, it's, what's, what you've set for them to do, if they can't reach their goals and you've given them everything they need to do it, then you got to really evaluate, is this, right, is this the right fit for you? You know, are we the right fit for you? And that all goes back to hiring, training, managing, leading, and delegating. So first thing I tell anybody right out of the gate when I hire them in the interview process is, you know, we're going to, this is a probationary period for both of us. We're going to find out whether we're a good fit for you, whether you're a good fit for us. We're going to know really quickly, um, you know, we are a, you know, we expect people, we hire professionals and we expect them to do their job. You're going to know exactly what's expected and when, uh, and we're going to measure that performance. And if it's working out great, but if it's not, we're going to cut ties really quick. Uh, and we're going to end this as friends because the longer a bad situation goes on, the worse it always ends. And you know, the, the harder it is to get rid of somebody. So we'll have those conversations up front. You can do disc testing and you know, things like that, but really until you put somebody in the position, you really never know. So it's really important to hold goal setting sessions 
early on, make sure they clearly understand their role and what their expectations are, and then measuring that performance, um, you know, to, <coughs> to see if they're achieving goals that, that's been set for them. No, that's awesome. That's very insightful. And I'm definitely going to, you know, check out those one minute manager books and get them on audio, just like you've suggested. I, I read a lot of books, but I can get more done if I'm, I'm listening to them as well when I'm driving from yeah. here to there, you know, that time, that downtime, I'm not doing much. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. Now, the next question I had for you though, is did you ever find times where you, you know, were just, you know, too busy to really do that, hold them accountable. And, you know, did you ever run into that where you felt like maybe you weren't giving it as much time as it needed and is, that was the reason why it wasn't doing well? Uh, no, because that, that was my job. You know, I'm a leader, delegator. And, um, you know, so I was, I was never, after a certain point now, you know, early on I did everything like everybody does. But I am really good. One of my God-given talent, my superpower is I'm a great delegator. I have no problem letting go of control and letting other people do their job and letting them fail and letting them succeed. Um, so no, uh, I've always, you know, once I reached a certain level and I put systems in place and I put people in place, uh, you know, my philosophy is if I'm going to pay you, I'm not going to do your job. So my role in my job has always been to coach. And that's, that's really what I am. You know, I'm, I'm a mentor and I'm a coach to everybody in my organization, people outside my organization. I mean, I'm a, I've been doing it my whole career. I've never done that as a business but I've done it in business with others in their business in my own business. So I've, I've always made sure that I am in a position to do that. And when, when my organizations were running at their peak and I had a big organization of 20, you know, uh, 30 employees, um, you know, I had, you know, leaders from the top down and I would spend the, the needed amount of time. That really was my job. My job was to pour into them, spend time with them, go over their goals, help them, reach their goals, hold them accountable, help them be successful. That was my job because I was no longer running the business. So that's one of the things that a lot of people forget. You know, once you get your systems in place, you get your business on autopilot, you don't have to run the business. You have to work on the business. A lot of people forget what working on the business really means is pouring into your people. And you're the leader. Leader sets the pace of the pack, you know. So it's all about leading from the front. So you've got to take the time, you know, to pour into those people to help them set their goals, help them achieve their goals and help them find out, you know, what's going right, what's going wrong. And, you know, you got to be sincerely interested in the success of your team and your organization. And that's everybody inside and out. And, and I've always just, you know, had a gift and a desire, you know, to do that in any organization I've been in, involved in. So, yeah, I, I just, you know, have always made the time, um, you know, for that. That's just how I'm wired. Yeah, that's really big. And, and I, I struggle with that. That's my biggest thing is I, I, you know, it's at the point where I know a lot of these things and, and working on the business is something we focus on, but I get so bogged down in some of the things that I'm so used to doing myself or feeling like I've just got to get it done. And I'm still in certain situations. I just told you I made how many videos yeah. like over this last week. And, you know, part of me is saying, why am I doing that? Right. And, you know, I'll have reasons for it and I'll back it up. But I, I'm just always wondering, I don't feel like this is really working on the business. And I think a lot of, you know, people flip, you know, still flipping houses, trying to build themselves out of that job of doing all the different things in the flipping business run across the same thing where it, you know, it's just that struggle of you're dealing with the day to day so much that it's hard to get above it. 
Yeah, and I and I get it, and I understand it, and and a lot of it is just DNA. It's just how some people are wired, and you know, I have friends that um, you know will never grow, will never hire, and they feel like they have to do it all themselves because they feel like nobody else can do it as good as me. So, number one, you have to be able to have the ability to let others make mistakes and to coach them through it and have tolerance for it. And as long as they're not huge, you know, uh, mistakes that cost you a ton of money, it's kind of easy to do that. But again, the mindset shift is instead of working on the business, you want to be working on the people in your business yeah. and growing them and helping them and have the philosophy of, you know, if I have people in my organization that I'm paying, I am absolutely not going to do their job. They're here for a reason. I'm paying them to do their job. And, um, uh, you, you know, so your number one role should be growing your people. And if you really want to grow your organization and, and you know, with, with the projects that you're working on, you've got a huge opportunity in front of you to where you've got to really, you're at a critical stage where you got to make that shift now and say, okay, I've got to start turning this over so we can really grow. Because once you release this thing, you know, what's going to happen, you know, and, and you're just, you're going to have this huge demand and this huge appetite, and then they're going to be asking for things. And in order for you to stay relevant, you got to stay ahead of that curve you cannot and will not be able to do that yourself. So you've got to find the best people you can. You know, I always use the analogy, you don't buy a thoroughbred and leave him locked in a stall, right? <laughs> you buy a thoroughbred, you let him out on the track. So you got to find champions, you got to find winners and you got to coach them to success and let them do, you know, what it is they're meant to do. And then you've got to organize your day and your time in working on the people and helping them solve problems and letting them solve their own but coaching them, overseeing them to where your day becomes meetings. Okay, I'm going to check in on these videos. How's it going? You know, obviously you don't want to let go completely because you need to make sure that you're delivering quality and the content is there, but you really shouldn't be filming the videos. You should be reviewing and critiquing uh, and helping edit those and while the other person's doing it, but then let them do it. Same thing with, you know, your developers, this, that, and the other. You know, you want to be over their shoulder, kind of looking at them, coaching them, cheering them on, and letting them do what you've hired and paid them to do. And that's really, you know, going back to, you know, the average house flipper that starts out, they don't have any business training. And I didn't either. And, I, and I'm telling you, so the One Minute Manager series, so it's the One Minute Manager is the first book, Leadership in the One Minute Manager, what, One Minute Manager, then it's Putting the One Minute Manager to Work, that's the second book. Leadership in the One Minute Manager is the third book. Those are the three big books in the series, all about how to lead, manage, delegate, and build a team. And then there's a fourth book, uh, One Minute Manager Leads uh, Successful Meetings or something like that. I can't remember what, but it's all about how to have effective meetings. And then the second book that I recommend that you read or listen to is uh, Managing by Harold Janine. Um, that is the other book that's been the most instrumental influence in my life and career and business and my philosophies, uh, Managing by Harold Janine. So Harold Janine was the CEO of ITT, you know, back in the days, one of the first multi-conglomerates that, um, you know, had all these different companies and all these different divisions. And, you know, in order, so he talks all about how to have efficient meetings, how to run a multi-tier organization, but, you know, he's not the guy making the videos. He's not the guy, you know, doing this, that, and the other. It's all about accountability within the organization and having efficient meetings where, um, you know, he'd bring his staff people together all in one room. They'd all put their P&Ls on the board and they would all go over what they're doing. So for you and your organization, you have your flipping company, you have your website company, you have your uh, CRM company, and I'm not sure whatever else you're working on. So you should have leaders in each of those divisions, and you should be bringing them together once a week where they put their issues and their problems on the board and everybody kicks in and helps them solve it. And you're kind of in the backlogs, but then you're working on everybody and you collaborate 
you know, they collaborate together so that you don't have that disconnect uh, and you have overlap between everything because everything you're doing is integrated. And mm -hmm. it all started with the house flipping, right. right? And then became the websites and CRM and, you know, and I don't know where else you're going next, but that's really how to take that organization to the next level. Same thing with the house flipper. So they've got to get the mindset of being a leader. You got to understand I'm a leader. My job is to serve and to give other people what they need to be successful. Tools, training, systems, support, and more importantly than that, clear direction and no uncertain terms what you want and when. Mr. Painter, I need you in Tuesday. I need you out by Wednesday, three o'clock because I've got, you know, the floor guy coming. The floor guy, I need you in and out. You know, so many times you hear people say, when's the painter going to be there? Oh, sometime next week. <laughs> you can't run, you know, you can't run that way. You got to have clear direction. I need you in by Tuesday, out by Wednesday. And, uh, you know, just like your budgets, we got five grand. That's all you got. Make it happen. And they do, you know, and it's interesting when you put those goals up in front of people, you know, they really do make it happen and they really do, you know, want to please and achieve it. But if they don't have, you know, if there's no yard markers, no end zones on the field, man, you're just running in circles all day. Yeah. Uh, Challenge so, them and, and encourage them to grow. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's really, you know, if anybody gets anything out of this whole thing today uh, and at whatever level you want to be at, whether you're doing 10 deals a year or whether you want to do 500 deals a year, um, I would look into the one minute manager and managing by Harold Janine and I would flip the mindset of working on my business to working on the people in my business mm. because people are your most valuable resource and your most valuable asset. That's what the one minute manager system is all about growing and developing people, helping them be successful. And I tell you, I get more of a kick out of that than anything else is, is helping people watch the light bulb go off in their minds and their careers and their lives and realize, wow, I'm doing everything I've been created to do my entire life. Everything I've been working towards my entire life. I just needed somebody to tell me I can and show me how. Nice. Yeah, Greg, I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite uh, interviews I've done on the podcast and we've got a hundred and I don't even know which one we're on now, 130 something uh, interviews. And, and I got to say, this has been one of my favorites. Oh, wow. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, we've, you've provided tons of value, tons and tons of value. And this is high level stuff. This is, you know, business growing kind of uh, information here from somebody that's done it a lot and done it you know, in a lot of different ways. So we really do appreciate you being on. If anybody out there listening wants to get a hold of you, is there a way for them to, to contact you? Yeah, so my website's gregdickerson.com and uh, email is greg at gregdickerson.com, 434-326-3903. That's my mobile number. But all my info is at my website, greg at gregdickerson.com. I'm also on Facebook. You can find me there. And I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I love what you're doing. I think you've got a lot of, untapped potential ahead of you. Um, I love your products. And, uh, you know, I just can't wait to see what you're, what you're going to do next. And uh, I'd be happy to be back anytime. Yeah, great. Thank you, Greg. All right. Well, have a great day. I really do appreciate it. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Yeah, sounds good. All right. All right. Thank you, Danny. Bye-bye.